every January we start the year the same as far as teaching on Sunday mornings go. Our first Sunday of the year we spend time digging deep into the Word and why the Word of God, the Bible, is uh, essential to our spiritual vibrancy as Christians and as a church. I was reminded uh, this past week reading an article by John Stott about the Bible and world evangelization where he said, without the Bible, world evangelization would not only be impossible, but actually inconceivable. It is the Bible that lays upon us the responsibility to evangelize the world, gives us the gospel to proclaim, and tells us how to proclaim it, and promises us that it is God's power for salvation for every single believer. And he goes on in that article to say that how committed a church is has a direct correlation to how evangelistic they are. I think I'm kind of 3D audio keep you awake. You lose confidence in the scriptures, then you lose zeal for evangelism. It's essential to who we are. We spend the third and fourth Sunday every January digging deep into the issues of racial reconciliation and sanctity of human life. They're always going to be important to us because they've always been and continue to be important to God. It's just a natural outflow of who we are as God's people. The more and more we see and experience racial harmony in our lives, in and through our lives, in and through our church, the more we value and show dignity and honor to image bearers from conception to their final breath, the more the reality of the gospel will be seen in us and the more Christ will be glorified. But today, the second Sunday, we devote to prayer, as Scott has said. You might say the word is the eating of our spiritual life, and prayer would be the breathing of our spiritual life. Paul Miller in his book, The Praying Life, highly, highly recommend that, says, American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn to pray. We're so busy that when we slow down to pray, we find it uncomfortable. We prize accomplishments, production, but prayer is nothing but talking to God. It feels useless as if we're wasting time. Every bone in our body screams, get to work. When we're not working, we're used to being entertained, television. Internet, video games, cell phones make free time as busy as work. When we do slow down, we slip into a stupor. Exhausted by the pace of life, we veg out in front of a screen or with earplugs. If we try to be quiet, we are assaulted by what C.S. Lewis calls the kingdom of noise. Everywhere we go, we hear background noise. And if noise isn't provided for us, we provide it for ourselves. So now that everyone is sufficiently beat up, Let's uh, pray and ask for God to help us this morning. Uh, see prayers. We should understand prayer. There's dozens of ways we can talk and walk through this crucial topic, but I hope and pray from this passage this morning you'll see a connection between our prayer lives and our relationship with God as Father. It's always been true of God that He's chosen to make Himself known through His Word, and we as God's people respond to His Word. It's always been true of God that He communes with His people through prayer. We hear and we speak, and there's this communication with the God of the universe. He longs for us to take time away from the chaos and to be still and quiet. And he longs for us to take him with us into the chaos and to live a life of prayer without ceasing. Matthew 6, beginning of verse 5. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. 
But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the needs, uh, knows the things you need before you ask Him. Father, we, we ask right now for your Spirit and your Word to do work good, deep, soul-transforming work in us. Father, where we need to be cut, where we need to be encouraged, where we need to be challenged, come today and do that. Transform us more and more. Thank you that you can do all these things because you are our Father and you love us deeply. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just like last week, the passage we're focusing on takes place within the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, the longest recorded teaching of Jesus consecutively, takes up all of Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. You'll see snippets of it in some of the other gospel accounts. But it happens very early in the life of Jesus' ministry. So in chapter 4 of Matthew, he's been baptized, led out to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And this is really his first teaching as recorded by Matthew. It's basically Jesus laying down a a picture, uh, a description of what life will be like for his followers, for those who are citizens of his kingdom. This is how you will live, and and this specifically is how it is different from the religious culture of first century Judaism and how it's different from the pagan culture of the Gentile or the Greek world, Greco-Roman world. Many famous passages come within the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Christians are the salt of the earth, the city set on a hill that cannot be hidden, the light you don't hide under a bushel. So if you grew up singing this little light of mine, that's where it came from, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, What's commonly called the Lord's Prayer, love your enemies, uh, all flow from this section, this sermon. One day, Lord willing, we'll walk through it. But in chapter 6, there's a shift, not because it's a chapter heading, because chapters weren't original, verses weren't original to the the original scriptures, but because there's a shift in Jesus' focus. Chapter 5, you might say, Jesus is talking about morality, how you apply this new way of life as a citizen of his kingdom to issues like murder, hatred, adultery, lust, lying, speaking the truth, responding to people who persecute you. In chapter 6, he's going to not deal with like behavior as much as how you live out your religious relationship, your relationship with God and religious practices by dealing with uh, fasting, praying, and giving. And you see the shift in Matthew 6, verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So how is practicing your righteousness different as a citizen of Jesus' kingdom compared to the Jews and the Greco-Roman culture. He begins by giving an example when, when you give, and then he moves on to this example of prayer. Now, first, Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites. Jesus' favorite word for the Jewish religious leaders. Well, how do they pray? He says they stand in public places and pray in such a way so they will be seen by others. Now, one of the most common reasons you will run across for people to not be engaged in a local church in our culture is because of these so-called hypocrites. If I've heard it once, I've heard it dozens of times. Are you part of a local church? No, I don't go to church. Too many hypocrites. And if I have a good enough relationship with them, I'll follow that up with something like, well, there's always room for one more. 
So why don't you join us? <coughs> and they'll kind of, what? What are you talking about? And I'll, I'll get to kind of walk them through, well, you know, what do you mean by hypocrite? Are you talking about someone who's striving to live right, but there's inconsistency and failure, like all of us? Or are you talking about someone who's trying to deceive people by wearing a mask and being two different kinds of people? What I hope they do is if they don't kick me out of their house is they engage in that conversation and we can get to the gospel. See, the word for hypocrite in the original language in the New Testament comes from the Greek theater that refers to someone wearing a mask to play two different characters. This would accurately describe the Jewish religious leaders. They placed a weight on the Jewish people by expecting them to live up to a standard of obedience as defined not by the law but by the traditions that in their mind explain the law. You do these things to be truly obedient while they created for themselves all kinds of loopholes. So if we were to do the same thing today, we'd be like a pastor in a church demanding and asking and, and telling you, you have to give, you have to give, you have to give, while he's not giving anything himself financially to support the church, and then condemning you and shaming you for not giving in the way that he told you you need to give. That guy has to go. In prayer, these guys would pray publicly in such a way that they would draw attention to themselves and seek the applause of men. What was missing, Jesus referred to in verse 6, where he says, But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, it's totally okay to pray publicly. Jesus is not trying to say you can only pray pri privately. But if your prob public prayers aren't flowing from private prayers, then why exactly are you praying publicly? Religious people do it to show, hey, look, look at me. I'm someone who's comfortable praying in public. <clears throat> you should be impressed by me. Jonathan Edwards wrote in a sermon about this passage that secret prayer is the only thing that we do as a Christian that is truly secret and no one but God knows. It's simply for us and God. His point was, if we do all the other aspects of being a Christian except for secret prayer, then everything that we do as a Christian is basically for show, he would say. Known by others to some degree. And without secret prayer, we're more likely to grow in our religiousness rather than our holiness. That's Edward's take on this passage. And sobering to consider. Another wrong way to pray is described by Jesus in verse 7. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. The Gentiles were known for their meaninglessness and their babbling in prayers. Literally, Jesus uses a phrase in the, in the Greek that says, to say bata. It's the only time it's used in, in, in the Greek language, not in the Bible or anywhere in Greek language. It's kind of an onomatopoeia word. It's a phrase where you say the word and it makes the sound you're trying to say. In our culture, it might be say, don't, don't just yada, yada, yada in your prayers to God. Just bump your gums and get nothing accomplished. The idea is this kind of meaningless prayer in an attempt to either make God happy, impress God, or control God and manipulate God to get what you want. And coming from a Gentile or pagan perspective, which is what he refers to when he talks about the Gentiles, it's, it's essentially treating God more like a pagan deity than the God who created the heavens and the earth. I'm going to jump through these hoops and you then have to do what I think you should do. I think it's around 90% of people in the U.S. admit to 
practicing prayer, every study I've ever seen, pe- they ask people, do you pray? Yes, like 90% of people pray to some degree. It's kind of like religion. Everyone's worshiping someone or something. <clears throat> Everyone to some degree comes to the end of themselves, and they're offering up some hope or plea to some entity that is beyond themselves. I, I can't make this happen. It's beyond my power to control this, so I need to just call out to something or someone. <clears throat> be a lot of praying in the Superdome tomorrow night <laughs> by, by both sides. <laughs> not here, not, not us, them. They spent all that money to go watch the game. <clears throat> so everyone prays. Is prayer, uh, what's important for us is not whether you pray or not. What's important is how does how you pray reveal how you view God? That's what this is about. If someone were just to observe your life and write down what they observe about how you practice prayer, what would it say about how you view who God is? Is prayer necessary? I mean, honestly, whatever's going to happen, it's going to happen. So prayer's not really changing anything. Does a spirit of cynicism affect your prayers more than a spirit of hope and faith? kind of doing it but I don't really believe anything different is going to happen because I'm praying but I know I'm supposed to in fact I usually only pray when I'm around others because I have to convince them that I'm a, I'm a mature Christian too I'm in this DNA group and we're talking about praying more often so they're going to ask me when I show up next week am I praying more I got to be able to say yes <laughs> but honestly when I'm alone I don't hardly pray at all it's praying more about getting what you want establishing your kingdom so we pray to either try and convince God to give us what we want. And so if we pray enough, beg enough, show enough sincerity, then maybe he'll give me what I want because I've impressed him. If I do enough, then maybe God will think I'm really serious. I really love him and he'll, he'll meet my needs. Or sometimes we bargain with God. If I give you this, if I act in this way, um, God, I'll do these things differently if you, if you answer my prayers, if you fulfill my dreams. Or sometimes maybe we think if we're serious enough and pray enough, we'll be able to put God into our debt. You've seen all I've done, God. You better come through. You owe me. None of us would admit that. It's awful to say. Who would admit that? But is that the actions and the lifestyle that are, are the way that, are, that we pray is revealing? Is that the theology that our lifestyle is preaching? The path to a vibrant, healthy relationship with God through prayer is first, be honest and admit where these bad attitudes infect our prayer lives. Vibrant spirituality is not about hiding where we are deficient, but about getting it on the table and then asking God to help us with it. Confronting the reality of who we are. That's the path to vibrant spirituality. Be, be genuine, be real. Where are you stinking it up in your prayer life? Where is your theology of prayer deficient? I don't pray enough in secret. I mean, it's been a constant battle in 20-something years I've been a believer. Read tons of books. I could tell you a bunch of good books. But I want to get better at it. I go through seasons where I do it better than other seasons, but never to the depth or the consistency that I really desire, that the deepest part of my being where Christ is alive hungers to experience God. I don't pray enough with my wife or for my wife. I don't pray enough with my kids or for my kids. 
For me, honestly, the depth and consistency of my prayer life is the best sign of where I'm at spiritually. I can show up and do this. I can read my Bible. I can be in those visible situations that Jesus talks about here in Matthew 6. But when I'm really enjoying and drinking deeply from who Christ is, it flows from this vibrant secret prayer time. So how about we get honest with God today? Admit to how you've allowed or we've allowed our prayer lives to become simply out-religious acts or how we've used prayer to try and manipulate God and control our lives or try and impress others. What should be driving our prayer life? Three things that we see in this passage. Our prayer lives should flow from our relationship with God our Father, should seek communion with Him as primary, and should be driven by our desperate dependence on Him for all we need. No really good alliteration there. You can take those and come up with something later on and let me know what it, what it is. But first, it should flow from our relationship with our Father. Our prayer life should flow from the reality of seeing God as our Father, and we are His children. And it's obvious because Jesus keeps referring to our Father. Pray in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't pray empty words like the Gentiles. Why? Because your Father knows what you need before you ask. And then He follows up this, this section, verses 5 through 8, with what we call the Lord's Prayer. And the very first two words of the Lord's Prayer is, let's say it together, Our Father who art in heaven, or who is in heaven. You may already know this, but the way Jesus referred to God as Father was revolutionary in his day. No one spoke of the God of the Old Testament in such intimate terms. The language of our day would be the same as referring to God as Dad, or Daddy. Hey, Dad. Thanks. Thanks, Dad. Appreciate that. The God of the Old Testament, the God in the minds of the Jews, were bi- was big, distant, unapproachable. He's the God who's shaking Mount Sinai. He's the fire that's not consuming the bush. Take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. He's the God who called all things into existence and sustains them by the word of his mouth. He's the God who parted the seas and sent down fire from heaven to judge people. He's not the God you hop up into his lap with, grab his hand, and go for a walk with, or sit with him on the couch and cuddle. He's beyond that. But all through the Gospels, Jesus keeps referring to God as Dad, Abba, Father. It was so uh, essential to Jesus' ministry that Paul picked it up and carried it throughout the rest of the New Testament. Revolutionaries. You see the, this tension holding perfectly in the opening phrase of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven. He is this big, amazing, powerful God who occupies heaven, who holds the universe in the palm of his hand that we call Dad. And in the history of the church, we've tended to swing the pendulum one way or the other. Either God is big, very much distant from us, we can't comprehend him, or God is close and relatable, even to the degree that some some redefine him as not being God. He's so much on our level. The proper posture is both. The God who holds the universe up by the word of his power is dad. Our father. Why? It's possible for us to do that because of the one time Jesus didn't refer to God as dad. My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? The reason we sinners, enemies of God, can call God of the universe 
father is because Jesus at one time said, you're no longer father. He is, but in this moment, he's taking on our sins and being condemned for our sins, being forsaken by his father. So that we, who the enemies of God, Romans 5.10, could be reconciled back to him. So that we, those who are far away, could be adopted into his family as his dearly loved sons and daughters. So that we could look at the God of the universe and say, Dad, that's who he is. Jesus made that possible because he lived the death, lived the life that we fail at living every single day. He died the death that we deserve to die. So that we could become the righteousness of God, that we could be forgiven of all of our sins, that we could get credit for Jesus' righteousness, and we could become part of the family of God. That is the gospel. And we are brought into his family, and forever we have access to him. We belong. Never to, once you're in his family, you're never kicked out. You're in forever. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. You see, often we stay distant in our prayers because of our sins. We see our sinfulness and we don't think we belong. It doesn't feel like we belong. We see our sinfulness and we think, well, I've got to clean myself up before I come back. I've got to have three days of consistent quiet times. Go to church for three weeks in a row. Then I'll feel like I'm back. We see our failures and all we feel is disappointment because that's how people treat us when we mess up. But your father in heaven doesn't say clean up first and come back. He doesn't say live perfectly for a few days and then you can come home. Get your act together and then I'll let you eat at my table. He is the father of Luke 15, the prodigal son constantly scanning the horizon, waiting for just one glimmer of you and then he's running to us. To embrace us, kill the fatted cat, put on the robe, get a ring for his finger, let's party. My son who is dead is now alive. My son who's lost is now found. That's our father. That's our father in heaven. Come as you are. That's how he wants you. Be honest about where you're at. Don't pretend or try to clean yourself up. Only he can do that. Talking about prayer in a room full of people who profess to know Jesus is a recipe for guilt and shame. We all stink at it, and we all know it. But don't hide in guilt and shame or pretend it's not that bad. Don't make empty promises to yourself like, oh, now I'm going to get serious. I'm going to buy this book. I'm going to download this app. I'm going to set my alarm for 3.30. I'm going to tell my accountability group. Now I'm going to get serious. I'm going to get a journal, start journaling all my prayers. Those things are good and helpful, but first, see yourself accurately as a broken mess, but also a dearly loved child of your Father in heaven. You belong. He wants you with him always in the mess you are in right now. He wants you because only in his presence can you be cleansed and empowered to know and love him and enjoy him in prayer. Only when you see yourself accurately can you live as a son and daughter of your Father in heaven. So see that your prayer life flows from your relationship with Dad. Secondly, see that what your dad desires is communion with him. Verses 5 and 6, everyone gets an award. For those whose prayers are in public, only for the purpose of being applauded by men, Jesus says, you'll get that. 
Good job. They'll applaud you. That, if that's what you want, you'll get it. But for those who desire communion with God, for the sake of communion with God that no one knows about, there is also a reward, Jesus says. Your Father in heaven will reward you. And he rewards us with himself. You see this in other passages. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, again, you see the connection between the fatherhood of God and our prayers. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Good things. That's not really defined. What are good things? I'm not sure. But in Luke's account of this same teaching, he adds an interesting detail, Luke eleven thirteen. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What is better than the good gift of God himself? If everything in the universe that is good that he could give us, what is better than God? It's the best thing he can give us. More than putting money in our bank account, paying off our, our mortgage, new car. I mean, all the things people are searching after, he gives us himself. There's nothing and no one greater than all the universe. There is no greater treasure. There's no greater enjoyment in prayer than to simply be with God and enjoy him. This marked Jesus' ministry. If anyone didn't need to pray, it would have been Jesus. Yet you see him constantly pulling away from ministry to go do what? Be alone with the Father. Be alone with the Father. And back, back to Matthew 6, if that's what's driving your secret prayer life, Jesus says, your Father in heaven will reward you. If you're coming to Dad to be with Dad, Dad says, I'll be there. You'll get me. What? I'll, I'll get him? Like all the things that keep us from secret prayer with our Father in heaven. Does anything compare to time with God in the universe? Time with Dad. Man, 30 more minutes in the bed is good. Three more snoozes. It's cold out there. These blankets are warm. If I could go to bed earlier, but now I'm on my seventh time through the office and Jim and Pan are about to get engaged. I have to finish this episode. Have you seen my Instagram feed? It's amazing. I need 15 minutes every hour to catch up on everything that I'm missing. You could add Sports Center and Snapchat streaks and exercise and work and any number of things that we for sure make sure we do every day. We're for sure going to get that done. Time with dad. He'll be there tomorrow. I'm not kicked out of the family. Am I I really missing anything? I love being married to to my wife, Jennifer. 20 years and counting. And we strive to be really intentional in our time with each other. And with teenagers and little ones, it's a battle more than ever. (laughs) It's crazy. And sometimes we'll tell the teens, you know, date nights happen sometimes. Sometimes we'll tell the teens, hey, you guys go 
hang out, watch a show. We're going to go hang out, watch a show. Or we'll get up, able to get up early before the little ones rise. It's amazing. They're like alarm clocks are so, I wake up so early. And we'll get time, coffee time together to enjoy each other. But sometimes we don't. So what happens when we miss that time with each other? Well, I mean, we're still married. Our marriage doesn't end, thankfully. But if it happens for several days on end, y'all know if you've married, if you've been married, you know. If you're in a relationship with somebody, you know. All of a sudden, conflict happens a lot quicker. You don't trust each other as easy. You're assuming things about each other. You're kind of bickering, getting snippy with each other. And what do we say to each other? We've got to reconnect. We've got to reconnect. Missing out on time with your father doesn't get you kicked out of the family, but you can only work so much for so long. Those tasks are always going to be there. You can only make so much money. You can only watch so much or read so much. You can only know and enjoy sports so much. But your dad, who knows everything and created all, is inviting us to know him and enjoy him and love him, and he is inexhaustible. You'll never get to the end of him. So what do you really desire? Who do you really desire? You even see this relationship between communion with God as the purpose of prayer and, and asking for needs in the Lord's Prayer. Before we ever ask for our daily bread, if you know the Lord's Prayer, beginning of verse 9. Before we ever ask uh, for, for God to lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Before we ever ask for him to forgive us our sins as we've forgiven others. Before we ever ask for these things for us, what does Jesus teach us to do in prayer? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. I just want to sit and think about how amazing that is. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This is about not my kingdom, but your kingdom. Before you ever ask for anything, it's just being with him and knowing who he is and enjoying who he is. Prayer flows from your relationship with your Father in heaven. Prayer is primarily about communion with God. Prayer is many things, but it must be communion with your Father if it is to be anything else. That is essential. And lastly, see that prayer is essentially desperate dependence on God our Father. Again, verse 8, in contrast to the babbling Gentiles who think they will control or impress God with their many words, Jesus says in verse 8, don't be like them because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for the same things over and over or persist in prayer. In fact, in Luke 11 and Luke 18, Jesus gives examples of this asking and seeking and knocking. You know, if your friend knocks on your door in the middle of the night asking for something to eat for the guest that's arrived in his home, you're going to get up and eventually help him out, even if he's driving you nuts, because you're his neighbor. He's your friend. How much more will your father be eager to respond to our persistent prayer? If the wicked judge will eventually uh, respond to the persistent widow who's driving him nuts, the contrast with God is how much more will your father respond to our persistent prayer? In fact, Jesus says that in Luke 18 in order to teach them how to pray and not give up. So this isn't so much instruction on mode of prayer or manner of prayer, but the heart behind prayer. Are you praying to try and control God or understand he is your father? And before you ask anything from him, he already knows. If anyone knows, 
He knows. He knows we are weak. He knows we are flawed. He knows how broken we are. 100% dependent on him for every cell in our body to work as he intended for it to work and not for ourselves just to wig out and start attacking our body and killing us. Depending on him for every heartbeat and every breath, every penny in the bank and retirement account, every millisecond of every day that we still live is because he was ordained that we will still be alive. Every hair growing on our body, every hair that's not growing on our body, every calorie of every day we need to be sustained, every molecule of H2O that, that lives in our body, that replenishes our body, all the cones and rods that helps us see, all the neurons firing up billions upon billions of times per minute, all that we need from him, and he gives it constantly, generously, abundantly. And he knows what we'll need for every single second until our very last breath. And guess what? He's not worried. He's not pacing back and forth. What am I going to do? There's a lot of people to take care of. They need a lot. He's not wringing his hands, sweating it out. He's got us. We see the same language later in the Sermon on the Mount. Another famous passage, verse 25. Don't worry about your life. Don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or, what, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more, more than clothing? Consider the birds of the air. They don't sow nor, sow nor reap or gather into barns, yet your father cares about them. How much more valuable are you than they? Consider the lilies of the field. They're not toiling and spinning for their clothes. Not worrying about that. I adorn them even more beautifully than I adorn Solomon. If God cares about the grass of the field that is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more does he care about you? And then he says later on in that section, verse 32, For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Those, those people who are not in relationship with me. The Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He knows. So what does he tell us to seek after? Famous verse. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. We could go through a bunch of practical how-tos to a vibrant, healthy prayer life, and I could recommend a bunch of books and resources because this has been a constant battle in my life. I've read a lot striving to grow in this but no matter the technique or strategy it's the heart attitude that has to be right in fact if the heart attitude is right you'll get the rest do you see that prayer flows from the reality that god is your dad and you are his child fully loved desired wanted and when we don't pray it's often what is a sign of pride we're living as though i don't, I don't need him He's optional. I got this. I can handle my kingdom. We would never say this again, but we live as though we don't really need him. But it's okay. Because when we go through those seasons, and we all do, what's your father doing? Open arms, ready to come back. Just, I'm right here waiting. We're going to have a few minutes of quiet to pray in a, in, in a second. Give us all space to reengage with God. Maybe you're this, this morning like John Wesley, founder of the Methodist. John was super religious, very active in the local church, very ambitious, very gifted. He could do a lot. But on one particular sea voyage, the boat that he was on was 
in a terrible storm, threatening to capsize it, maybe to lose their life, and, and Wesley's just losing his mind, scared to death. And then he notices the Moravians. If you don't know who the Moravians are, Google them and read about them. Incredible group of people who had a passion to get the gospel around the world. And these Moravians were working so hard, yes, but with so much peace and rest. Wesley knew he didn't have that. I'm very religious, getting a lot of things done, but I don't have what they have. And that began him on a journey where he would come alive in his inner self, that he, he would grow warm to who God really is. And he basically would come alive in Christ to be transformed. So maybe as I'm describing this life of prayer, you're kind of on the outside looking in like, I've never really had that. I've never really experienced that. In fact, if I were to be really honest, I don't know that I've really desired it. And here is the Spirit of Christ this morning, the Holy Spirit of God saying to you, come, come to me. I want to give you that. I want you to know me in the deepest way possible that you can know the God of the universe. As you confess that that's who you are, this broken sinner, and you trust in Jesus who's sufficient to save you from all your sins, today might be the day of salvation for you, that you come alive in Christ, be adopted into the family of God, and forever be his dearly loved son or daughter. I encourage you to take this time in prayer to have that conversation with God, and then let somebody know as we sing and as we worship the rest of our time. And then Christian... How often do you sit quiet with the Lord for five undistracted minutes? Use this time well and let it not be an anomaly in your life, but the pattern of your life. Dad is here. So let's use this time with him well. <laughs>